0: Today, I'm going to cover Means of Ascent by Robert A. Caro. This is the second of four books that are part of Caro's The Years of Lyndon Johnson series. This is book nine for my 2021 reading list. Over the east doorway of the U.S. Senate chamber, there is a Latin quote that reads Eknuit Coeptis. You may recognize this from a widely seen photo from the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riot, where there was a man hanging by his hand from the Senate balcony with his arm almost directly in between those two words. The phrase translates to God has favored our undertakings or Providence favors our undertakings. Well, what are the undertakings of the Senate? To a large extent, it's a deliberation of the bills before they are approved or rejected to continue on the process of becoming a law. So for that quote to be in the Senate chamber, undertakings would be referring to those deliberations for or against basically the process of moving a bill along. God has favored our undertakings, or Providence, God favors our undertakings. So it begs the question, does God or Providence care about the final bill or the undertakings or the process to get to that bill? Put in another way, do the ends justify the means? And the fact that Icnuet Coeptis is located within the Senate chamber has enormous relevance to this book. A large portion of of this book is dedicated to Lyndon Johnson's 1948 Senate race in which he won and thus became a senator from Texas. Without that win, his path to the presidency would have been completely derailed. So the title of today's book is Means of Ascent and it is a brilliant title. Let's consider its different parts. In the intro of the book, Robert Caro asks the following. That campaign... And by that campaign, he's referring to the 1948 Texas Senate campaign, raises, in fact, one of the greatest issues invoked by the life of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the relationship between means and ends. Many of the ends of Lyndon Johnson's life, civil rights in particular, perhaps, but others, too, were noble, heroic advances in the cause of social justice. Although those ends are not part of this volume, those ends are a part of that life. Many liberal dreams might not be reality even today were it not for Lyndon Johnson. Those noble ends, however, would not have been possible were it not for the means, far from noble, which brought Lyndon Johnson to power. Their attainment would not have been possible without that 1948 campaign. And what are the implications of that fact? To what extent are ends inseparable from means? Of all the questions raised by the life of Lyndon baines Johnson, no question is more important than that end quote. So when Caro is, is talking about that, when he's saying, to what extent do the ends are, are the ends inseparable from the means? Does the end justify the means? What, what is he talking about by, by means? Well, there, there's a few different ways he, he talks about this. And in, in the first, there's just the straight- up means of Lyndon Johnson gaining power. And he wants power, if you remember from the first episode that covered the first of this series, Johnson did not have a moral framework guiding his actions. Caro says passions were at ambition's command. So his moral framework was ambition. Whatever ambition said, whatever, whatever led to LBJ getting power, those means were okay in his mind. He, it was an, a, an amoral ambition. There was not some, LBJ is kind of presented as having some sort of a plan of, of getting to where he wants, which is ultimate power in the presidency. But at the end of the day, he, he, want, he just wanted power. He wanted to lord power over other people. So the means that are discussed in this book, means of assent, of him gaining that power, especially in the 1948 Senate election, are lying, paying for individual and collective votes, stealing an election and using government influence for personal gain. On the, so that's on one side of it, the, the means that lead to the end of, of, of power, of, of ambition. There's also a side that LBJ just does not even care about the means. And in that 1948 Senate race, LBJ started using a helicopter one, just for transportation to get around the huge state of Texas, but also for the novelty of it. I mean, just imagine like very few people have seen helicopters at that point and, and you come in as a politician and you're landing in the city and in a helicopter, you come out and then give your speech, go back into the helicopter, go to the, go to the next station. It, w- it, it was taking Texas by storm. But the pilot of that helicopter had this to say, the helicopter was only a means to an end. This end was, all, was so all-consuming that the means mattered not at all. No consideration that might interfere with victory could be allowed to intrude, end quote. So LBJ is presented as is getting into this helicopter, not even looking at the helicopter, not even looking at the instruments or anything. He's just, he is so focused on winning, so focused on the next speech he's going to give that he does not even care about the means, the helicopter, that, that is taking him from place to place. just kind of really interesting difference, I guess, in in one side, just doing anything possible to get that power, but then on the other hand, not caring as long as it got him to the next, to the next spot. And it's really summed up in this quote of, he says, when he's, he's presented a speech by some conservatives in Texas, where it's, it's a fear based speech. It's just, it's not a good thing. And it, and it's, it's LBJ kind of putting his foot forward in, in a place that he hasn't gone before. And the speech is written out for him. He has not written it. And they want him to give that speech exactly. And he's kind of thinking about it a little while. And then somebody asks him, you know, are, are, you, are you really sure you want to give this? Because this, this, this speech plays in the fears and the prejudices of unsophisticated unsophisticated and poorly educated people. Are you sure you want to give this? And here's LBJ's response. He says, I can refuse to make this speech. And when I'm out of office, I can go over to the union headquarters in Washington and tell them what a noble thing I did. And when I get over there, the receptionist is going to say, Lyndon who? And she's going to call upstairs and then she's going to go on to say, who are you with? And then she's going to say, I'm I'm sorry, but there's no one who can see you. End quote. That was the defining... Piece of LBJ, he did not want to be a nobody. He didn't want somebody to say Lyndon who, and so whatever the means were to get to the ends of power and for uh, fame and and for people to know who he was, it that that was okay. But let's consider the the other side of of means and in the end. This is not in this book. And in fact, it's not in any of the Carroll books because the, these, this four book series does not even get to his, pre, his presidency. Uh, he's working on that right now, I believe the fifth book of this series. But there in, in 1965, Lyndon Baines Johnson submits a civil rights bill before a joint session of Congress. And he gives a speech and it's a famous speech. It was March 15th, 1965, the Ides of March. And here's what he said. Their cause must be our cause too, because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice, and we shall overcome. Now that speech was in Washington, D.C., but there was something else happening at that time in Selma, Alabama, and I'm going to read from the introduction here. There was a moment of silence as if one observer was to say, it took a moment for the audience to realize that the president had adopted the rallying cry of black protest as his own, which was, and we shall overcome, had joined his voice to the voices of the men and women who had sung that mighty hymn, and then the applause rolled across the chamber. And there were testimonies to the power of that speech even more eloquent than the applause. One took place in the living room of a local family in Selma, Alabama, where Martin Luther King and several of his aides were watching the speech on television. During all the years of struggle, none of his aides had ever seen Dr. King cry. When Lyndon Johnson said, we shall overcome, they looked over to their leader to see his reaction. So they were looking when Martin Luther King began to cry. End quote. He made Martin Luther King Jr. cry. In the first episode, I I highlighted that LBJ had the ability to make grown men cry. And I said that was on two fronts. One, he made grown men cry in adoration. And he made grown men cry in in fear and trembling and uh, from abuse by the man, uh, verbal abuse. He, he had that power, and here he is submitting the civil rights bill that, that got passed, and those are the ends. That's the ends of the means. Do the means justify that end? Now let's take a look at the other part of the title, and that is ascent this book takes place between 1941 and 1948 those are the years covered in this book the first book of the series covers 1908 when LBJ was born to 1941 this book is 1941 to 1948 and it, it it's considered the wilderness years of LBj 1941 is the really the onset of, of World War I for for the United States uh, in, in getting into the to the war uh, getting attacked December 7th 1941 at Pearl Harbor, and LBJ. Uh, we'll talk about this in this episode, but um, the war years are, are bad years for for him, and he he does become a part of the war, and we'll get into that. But uh, it's it's largely a wilderness years on LBJ's path to power. If you remember from the the first episode, he had lost a Senate race by that point. So in 1941, he's lost a Senate race. He is a congressman, but his power is kind of waning throughout this period, 1941 to 1948. So in many ways, though the title says Ascent, this book is covering a descent, and the descent is in power, but also in character. And you only see an uptick in the power at the end in that 1948 Senate race, but you do not see an uptick, uptick in character. So, Means of Ascent. Yes, he's ascending, but this book is almost more covering a descending. And then, what is the ascent that he is actually getting? Is, is he becoming a better person? Is he becoming presidential? Is he becoming a better politician? Or is is he descending in that sense? So again, just a brilliant title. You've got the Means of Ascent. Means having a, a number of different, of different uh, meanings and means tying into the ends. Do the means justify, do the, does the end justify the means? But then you've also got the ascent. Well, was it really an ascent? This book covers three main areas of LBJ's life during this period, 1941 to 1948. So the first is LBJ's war years. The second is a shift to money while he's still a politician so in, in the first book, we, we see that LBJ's turning down almost free money because it might interfere with his political ambitions. He, does, he doesn't want to be known as an oil man uh, because that might hurt his overall presidential ambitions. But as he's descending in power throughout these years, he starts not caring as much about what people think about his financial, the financial side of his life. And so he starts shoring up on the financial side, but he uses his, his political influence to do so. And then the third part of this book, the, is the 1948 Senate race. And this is a Senate race against unbelievable odds. LBJ is running against, against a man, Coke Stevenson, who has never lost an election in his life and who is called Mr. Texas. This book was absolutely thrilling. I could I could see it becoming a movie, especially the 1948 Senate race part of it. That part was just exhilarating. I mean, my, my heart was was beating really fast during a lot of it, and um, you're just thinking how how is LBJ going to going to get through this? Like he is so far behind in this race. He just has a few months left. How is this going to work out? So I actually enjoyed this book more than the than the first book of the series, and it it was I mean it was it was thrilling. So just to whet your appetite a little bit, this book contains some of the following. It's a clash between the old and the new Texas. There is a true Texas Ranger that shows up and, and kind of tries to exact law through through just force of, of personality. and there, And then there are just absolutely thrilling court scenes that take place, tying in with the 1948 Senate race. As for stats... This book took me 17 hours, 5 minutes, and 14 seconds. I read it from uh, February 14th through the 26th, so that was roughly 32 pages per day. It's a 412-page book, and it is is the shortest book of this series. The intention of the book is this, and and Robert Caro says this in the introduction. This biography of Lyndon Johnson is intended to be a study not merely of his life, but of American history during the years of that life. The way Robert Carroll writes is that about half of the book is about LBJ, and the other half is the context to give you a better understanding of LBJ. This episode will consist of two additional segments. The next segment, Segment 2, I'll go through LBJ's World War II experience, his financially advantageous wilderness experience, and then the epic 1948 Senate race. In Segment 3, I'll cover the one thing, my one key takeaway from Means of Ascent. I received the following comment from somebody after they listened to the first episode that I did covering book one of this series. And he said this, as a journalist myself, I find that I learned more from Robert Carroll than four years of college and journalism classes in 25 years on the news desk. That's really an incredible thing to say. And you can see that throughout this book. You can see that throughout Carroll's writing. The the amount of context he goes into to, to help you understand Lyndon Johnson American history at the time um, the way government was set up the the way campaigns were run it's really an incredible feat and I I just loved that comment from from this listener that he learned more from Robert Caro than from journalism school or, or even 25 years on the job at a news desk so if you have not read these books I, I strongly encourage you to do so they they have been incredible I'm, I'm about a third of the way into the third book right now, and I'm just, I'm loving it, and it's not boring at all, they're, they're huge books, but it is, it's been really thrilling. So let's get into segment two here, I'm going to title this segment, The Lucky Number 13, and 13, the number 13 plays a big part in Means of Ascent. So first, let's go into LBJ's World War II, uh, what he did during World War II. In 1941, LBJ, LBJ ran for Senate, and he lost. In that campaign, he made this promise. If ever the day comes when my vote must be cast to send your boys to the trenches, that day Lyndon Johnson will leave his Senate seat to go with him, End quote. Another time he said this, if Hitler makes an all out, this an all-out war, I shall vote in the Senate for war. And when I cast my vote, I shall tear up my draft number and join the boys picked to defend our homes and our God and our liberties. I shall never vote for war and then hide behind a Senate seat where bullets cannot reach me. End quote. Well, LBJ lost that election, but a lot of people remembered that those statements, he made them at almost every stop just because they were so popular while while he was campaigning. So, though he didn't get the Senate seat, he was still a congressman. And when he's saying, I wouldn't hide behind a Senate seat where bullets cannot reach me, well, when the time came to kind of fulfill that, that promise of, of going where the boys from Texas would be going and go into the trenches and join, and join those, those boys, Johnson did not go to the Pacific. Uh, instead, he went to the White House, and he went there to ask for a job that would keep him in Washington. Well, he was given a a role, and this was to go and inspect shipyard training programs in Texas and California. And the time he spent, especially in California, he spent—well, he may have inspected some, some shipyards, but he also spent a lot of that time partying and visiting with his lover, Alice Glass, and— hobnobbing with Hollywood elite. So this is during the war. And instead of being in the trenches, he's, he's having a good time and and partying. Of course, uh, that's not widely publicized at the time. And his office is saying, you know, he's hard at work doing these, these inspections. Uh, But, but yes, while our soldiers are dying in Europe and the Pacific, he is partying. So finally, uh, Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, president at the time, agrees to send Johnson as the Navy's representative to the Southwest Pacific on a three-man survey, survey team to report on the war effort. So LBJ is trying to at least get close to the battlefront so he can tell his constituents, hey, I, I, you know, I'm fulfilling my promise that I gave you. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head over there. And so he kind of finagles his way to get on this, this three-man survey team to go to the Southwest Pacific. And while he was there, he did go on a bombing mission that took off from New Guinea. And while he was in this plane, he was en route, they encountered Japanese planes and they were fired at. And one of the planes that was part of this, this survey crew, uh, actually the one that LBJ was initially supposed to be on, and it was in there and, and somebody said, no, you're not on this plane. That one was actually shot down and there were no survivors. So all accounts of this, this flight where there are Japanese planes right next to the plane, they're shooting, all accounts are that LBJ was brave and he looked out the window the entire time. He was not, you know, huddled in the corner in a, in a, in a ball or something like he was looking at the enemy head on. Uh, He was an observer, you know, he's not, he doesn't have a gun in his hand from the plane shooting, shooting at these planes, but, but he's, he did not, he, he did not act as a coward. Which in the first book of this series, you see him acting as a coward often. And so Kara's just saying that, you know, when the, when the time came for him to be courageous, he, he was courageous. But that battle and that battle while he was in the plane lasted for 13 minutes. And that was LBJ's only flight that included combat uh, experience. And it lasted for 13 minutes. Well, in the southwest, uh, southeast Pacific at that time, General MacArthur was there, and when LBJ after after this this flight heads back and, and meets with MacArthur, MacArthur awards him the Silver Star for those thirteen minutes of of bravery. Thing is, no one else on that flight received the Silver Star, and it was only the observer on that flight, LBJ, who got the Silver Star. Carroll presents MacArthur as as being politically savvy in the sense that okay. This guy is a congressman. Uh, if I award him the Silver Star, that might look good to Franklin Roosevelt. And LBJ is somewhat connected to, to Franklin Roosevelt. So uh, it's kind of presented more as he gave him the Silver Star as a, as a politically savvy move. But anyway, when LBJ gets back to the States after a bout of, of uh, sickness, he gets back to the States and he 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 says, "You know i'm not I'm not going to take advantage of this this silver star, but he ends up doing so and starts exaggerating the the war stories. And there's this quote that said, "Exaggeration spilled over into something more that bore little resemblance to the reality." This ties in directly with first book of b s. Johnson. In college, he was known as Bull. Shit, Johnson, bullcrap, Johnson, and people spe- said that to him to his face. He just lied so much that that he was known as as that type of a person. So at, at first he he felt that he didn't deserve the medal, but then he came to to feel that not only he deserved it, but he deserved more. And the, and so, uh, there was a quote that said that the silver star was not a sufficiently high honor for such heroism as his. End quote. And what's, what's interesting is he would be with other veterans. Like he, whenever he was, he was, um, he was going around, he would try to get veterans to introduce him. And these are veterans who had seen just a ton of war. You know, the, he would, he would specifically choose veterans who were missing a limb just to, to make it even more dramatic. And here are men who had really seen battle. And here comes LBJ with 13 minutes of combat experience and with a silver star. Kara's point in all this is that Johnson could believe whatever he wanted to believe. And here is the defining statement about this period of LBJ's life. It was that capacity of Lyndon Johnson's that when one assesses his influence on history proves to be the single most significant implication of his war service, end quote. Further, World War II as a whole for LBJ, again, remember this is his, his wilderness years, he viewed World War II as an interference with his agenda viewed it as an interference with his agenda this this worldwide war just just amazing so that that was the first thing so not only is it an interference with his agenda he's 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 kind of losing status in power during this time especially come 1945 when FDR dies FDR uh, uh, LBJ was close to FDR in, in the sense that, that there, there were ups and downs in the relationship, but but LBJ could get into a meeting with FDR more or less. And so when he dies in 1945, that, that access to the White House goes away. And now he's kind of dwindling even in more power. He's just one of the many congressmen. He, he's not standing out at all. And remember, he always wants to have that power. He always wants to be the top person. So what does he do? He starts seeking after money. In dwindling power, he seeks after money. And here's the quote, Lyndon Johnson had worked at politics for years to achieve power. Now he was working at politics to make money, end quote. So what he does, he starts using his inside knowledge, his inside relationships, especially with the FCC, and he uses those relationships to purchase a radio station for cheap, he puts the ownership of it under Ladybird's name, his wife, and has her manage it. But he is—he's using his influence to to make this happen. And there was a businessman at the time uh, who who later said this: "Everybody knew that a good way to get to Lyndon to help you with government contracts was to advertise over his radio station." End quote. So the radio station not only is it a way for LBJ to make money; it's a way for him to use his influence. And people could seek to get LBJ's influence by advertising. I I mean, it would be something like perhaps having a hotel, say, near the White House and and have people stay there. Just another potential. Later on, they say this. Here's the problem with with this. In asking a businessman to purchase time in a station, he was not conferring a favor, a transaction which would result in power for him, but he was receiving one, And and that's the quote, in asking a businessman to purchase time on his station, he was not conferring a favor, a transaction which would result in power for him, but he was receiving one. This ultimately led to LBJ wanting to double down to get back into politics. He did not want to be on that side of a transaction. He wanted to be the one who was getting favors. He didn't want to ask and beg for people to purchase time on his station so that he could make money. So it was, it was a balance of power issue for him. And as a businessman, he could not have the power that he wanted, even owning this radio station through his wife. So now the shift into the third part of the book of the 1948 Senate race. So at this time, Texas law prohibited a candidate from running for two offices. So remember, LBJ is a congressman at this time, but he cannot remain a congressman and then also run for the Senate. So he has to relinquish his House seat. What that means is that this is an all or nothing proposition. He could have just remained a congressman and probably would have won that race, but he gives up that role, he gives up being a congressman, he gives up his House seat, and he is going all or nothing for this Senate race. Here's the problem. In 1948, he is running against Koch-Stevenson. And you could not ask for a better case study on a difference in candidates. I've made a running list just of of Koch-Stevenson versus Lyndon Johnson. And on one side, you've got Koch-Stevenson, he's campaigning the old way. Lyndon Johnson's campaigning the new way, marketing, helicopters, uh, radio time. Koch-Stevenson would run for office only because he was asked to solve a problem. LBJ would run for office for his ambition, for, p- for power. Koch-Stevenson loved to read. He was a self-educated man. He educated himself on, on law. He became a lawyer. He did not go to law school. He, he, he taught himself law. He taught himself how to build his own house, and just throughout his life, he would just read to, to learn and, and then apply that. LBJ hated reading. Koch-Stevenson was about honor, respect, and truth. LBJ was about lies, disrespect, and, dishonored, and dishonor. Koch-Stevenson was largely beloved by the people of Texas, and LBJ was largely distrusted. Just a fascinating look then at these two candidates. And going into it, Stevenson was ahead in the polls. This is May 16th, 1948. A poll shows that Stevenson is ahead of Johnson 64% to 28%. The election is in July. So in, less, in, 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 in a little more than two months, there is an election, and Ste- Stevenson is ahead of Johnson 64% to 28%. So again, you're thinking... How in the world is LBJ going to, going to do this in the 1941 Senate election, LBJ had bought and stole votes, but he just, he didn't steal as many as the person who won Pappy O'Daniel, who ended up winning. And that was a huge setback for LBJ. So remember, this is his, his wilderness years. He is not going to let that happen again. So here's what he does. He, he lies. And the way he lies is to accuse Stevenson of doing everything that he is actually doing. And it's it's just astonishing. He, every single thing that he points to as Stevenson and, and saying it in a bad way is actually things that LBJ has done or is currently doing and things that Stevenson has not done. So he's putting all these things that he is doing on Stevenson. Stevenson has not done these things. But Stevenson will not—he's he's from the old school. He's not going to, like, get— he he's pointing to his record. He said, "I'm I'm not going to give you a bunch of promises, campaign promises. I want you to look at my record. That's what I that's what I did. That's what I'm going to do again." LBJ is using just vast advertising money to to repeat these lies. So it's just these lies are just getting repeated in, into people's head. He does block voting, and this is kind of in South. South Texas, where v- votes could be bought. And they're kind of leaders of different communities. And whatever the leader said, almost everyone in that community would would do it. And if they didn't do it, the leader of that community would would just lie and said that, you know, here are the votes, and this is what they, they voted for. So there, there's block voting, and these votes can be can be bought. And so LBJ buys them and he buys them right away. So he, he's trying to get this advantage right away to get that 28% up and to, to start getting over Stevenson. And then, as I mentioned earlier, he's using this helicopter. So he's, uh, Stevenson is, is driving to his, to, to his Meetings all over Texas, and, and Stevenson is just kind of pulling up outside of a courthouse, and then not, not even necessarily announcing that he's going to be there, and just striking up conversations with with a few voters at a time. LBJ, on the other hand, is flying in on a helicopter with a with a speaker on the helicopter. So as he's landing, they're 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 announcing his his arrival. Uh, he comes in on this helicopter, he, he opens the door of the helicopter, throws, throws his cowboy hat into the crowd and, and gives this rousing speech and then gets back into his helicopter. You know, they got to move all the kids away so that they don't get chopped up by the helicopter. And it's this huge show and he's got a band's playing and all this stuff. And it's just all about the show. It's all about the marketing, all about the advertising. And that's how LBJ tried to break that barrier of being behind 64 to 28%. So the Democratic primary results. So, so both of these these guys are Democrats. So this is the Democratic primary. But Texas is a pretty much a Democratic state at this point. And so, even though it's the 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 primary, it's not the Republican versus the Democrat. This is this is basically who's going to determine because whoever the Democrat is, they're going to beat the Republican. So that that election later on in the year is not even really an issue. This is the main election. Whoever is going to be the Democratic. Candidate, and so in that first election, the primary results from Saturday, July twenty fourth, nineteen forty eight, Coke Stevenson wins. He gets thirty nine point six eight percent of the vote, four hundred seventy seven thousand seventy seven votes, to Lyndon Johnson's thirty three point seven three percent of four hundred and five votes, and four hundred five thousand six hundred and seventeen votes. So Stevenson destroys him, but he does not have a majority, so they go into a runoff. The runoff is scheduled for a month and four days later for Saturday, August 28th, 1948. So LBJ has just a little over a month to, to get to break that 39%, uh, almost 40% to 34%. And he does it. And he wins the Democratic runoff by, uh, by 87 votes. So Lyndon B. Johnson had. 494,191 votes to Koch-Stevenson's 494,104 votes, 87 vote difference. However, there were a lot of problems with this. One is that there were 200 votes in Precinct 13, District 13, that came in a few days later, and they were in alphabetical order, and... They all voted, except for two of those people, for Lyndon B. Johnson. And so that put him over the top uh, with winning by 87 votes, these 200 votes. Um, do Do you think that 200 voters all of a sudden came into one polling booth? They came in in alphabetical order and voted in alphabetical order? Probably not. But there were just a ton of irre- irregularities and, uh, and Carroll goes through the whole history and shows how this was truly a stolen election. And it wasn't just 200 votes that were in play. There were thousands and thousands of votes that were fraudulent and, uh, that, that showed, uh, LBJ winning, uh, through fraudulent means. So this was a stolen election. This story followed him uh, many years later in 1976, the Texas Monthly wrote, a group of dead men who had risen from the grave to cast their ballots in the alphabetical order for LBJ. So not only were these 200 votes uh, in alphabetical order, they uh, they started asking these people uh, whose names were of these 200, did you vote? And, and a lot of them had not even voted. And then uh, some of the other names of those two hundred people were were dead. So it would have been really hard for them to dead had they not risen from the grave in order to cast their ballots. It's it's known as as Box Thirteen. It's known as District Thirteen. And this was just a a shame. But again, you're talking eighty seven votes here, and this is what got LBJ to the Senate, and this is what eventually led to him becoming president. He would not have become president most likely had this not gone his way there's actually you you just feel bad for koch stevenson and even some of the people who who did the the bad things to get lbj elected who who changed votes and added votes and all this they they felt bad for koch stevenson because he was such a stand up man he was mr texas he 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 was a respecter of laws and they felt bad for that but but robert carroll gives a beautiful tribute to him uh, Coke Stevenson remarries his first wife had died. He remarries, uh, is just in love with this woman. He, he, he remarries, uh, has a daughter and just loves this daughter so much and spends the rest of his life on his ranch, which he loved and reading and spending time with his wife and daughter. So it's a be- beautiful tribute to this man who was so deeply wronged by LBJ in this stolen election. But those are the three main parts of this book, this, this fake World War II experience of a consisting of 13 minutes of which he just used that for the rest of his life, highlighting the silver star for this 13 minutes of, of basically just sitting in a plane. The shift in buying this radio station to getting power through politics, to using politics for personal gain and becoming a millionaire and then the third part of this 1948 Senate race. Now into segment three and the one thing. And I'm kind of ashamed to even say this as being my one thing, but it stuck out to me so much, and I don't usually do this, that this has to be my one thing for this book. And that is just to call out how evil LBJ was. I wrote evil in the margins of this book a, a number of times. I, I would just be enra- so enraged inside of how LBJ was conducting the campaign, what he was doing to other people, that I would just, I would be so mad I would just write evil or even evil bastard in the, in the margin. And again, I, I this is not a common thing. I mean, I've read a number of books about about pure evil, but seeing this man do these things to other people, um, not have any limits on his personal ambition. I, I I know this is very black and white, but my my one key takeaway from this book is just how evil LBJ was. And here are a few examples. So remember, I just finished off talking about this box thirteen in in texas many years later when lbj was the president there was a interviewer named ronnie duggar and he interviewed lbj at the white house and here's what uh here's a a writing from from that one night up in his bedroom he started laughing and he seemed to wonder if he could find something and he said he was going back into bird's bedroom so that's lady bird his wife which was next door and he rummaged around in a closet I could almost, I think, hear him rummaging around in the closet. And he came in with this photograph of these five guys in front of this old car with box 13 balanced on the hood of it. I looked at him and grinned, and he grinned back, but he wouldn't explain it to me. I asked him, well, who are these guys? Why did they have box 13 on the hood of his car? What did it mean? And he just, nothing. He wouldn't say. As we'd say in Texas, he wouldn't say nothing. So there it is, history turning on a mystery end quote. So box 13 there there's, uh, after, after LBJ wins the, the Senate election by fraudulent means, uh, Coke Stevenson, the other candidate takes this to court and, and they have, they're trying to find this box 13, which would have contained that list of 200 people because to see a list of 200 people written in alphabetical order, uh, in all of two, but two of them voting for LBJ, some of them dead, some of them, and, and then you could call the witnesses to the stand for the other ones of, no, I did not vote, but here's my name showing that I voted. That would pretty much be conclusive evidence. And all you would need is those 200 votes taken away and LBJ would no longer win by 87. And here is LBJ in the White House holding on to this photo showing what ended up being five guys who, who helped get this done and hide this box 30, 13 from, from evidence in this, in this court uh, proceeding. And here's what, what Robert Caro says about this. For a president to preserve as a personal memento a photograph showing the notorious box 13 in the possession of his political allies, a photograph which by implication proves that someone was indeed in a position to stuff it, is startling in itself for him to display the photograph to a hostile journalist is evidence of a psychological need so deep that it de- its demands could not be resisted. It is continuing evidence of the fact that not even his possession of the presidency had eased the insecurities of his youth, end quote. A few other examples of, of LBJ's uh, evil. Uh, Koch Stevenson, the, the other candidate that... Um, that LBJ is running against for Senate, his wife had, had passed away, and LBJ decides to use that in the campaigning to say that Coke doesn't have a wife. Look at me, LBJ, I have a wife. Look at Lady Bird. Even though he treats her like absolute crap, he highlights that fact that Coke. well, look Coke over there, he doesn't have a wife, but, but I do, and, and kind of highlighted that. Uh, he also ridiculed Stevenson for not having military service. And as I've highlighted in this this episode, LBJ had all of 13 minutes of military service. He didn't even want to have done that. He only did it because he had said he, he would. Another side is a lot of the money that is funding LBJ's candidacy and his campaign is from a company called Brown and Root. And they are highlighted a lot in these books but uh brown and root are they they obtain a number of government contracts for huge projects like the building of dams and they make just an exorbitant amount of money from these projects and lbj helps them get these projects through influence and and that sort of thing so they they are funded by federal dollars the these big projects and brown and root are are becoming personal millionaires and then you know their company is doing well because of this a, a lot of because of this federal money. Well, I've only been to DC once. Uh, when I was there, there were no trees in which gr- money grew on, and I don't know if it was different in 1960s or the 1940s. But federal money has to come from somewhere and it comes from the taxpayer. So here's Brown and Root giving LBJ money for his candidacy from money, yes, they, they they did get a lot of money too from, from just other projects, but they get a ton of money, uh, federal dollars. They're getting and using taxpayer money that they've been awarded through the influence of LBJ to give money to LBJ's candidacy. And that is ultimately from the taxpayer. Last thing I want to highlight is uh, once LBJ gets to... The Senate, he, you know, he's, he's won the candidacy. He's won the um, election in 1948. He becomes senator. And 1949, he goes around and he calls himself landslide, landslide Linden and then kind of gives a wink and a nod whenever he says that. So he's won by 87 votes, which is, which is nothing. And that's fraudulent at that. And, and there's kind of a people people know that the, the, this was not just a straight up election and so he's winking and nodding as he's calling himself Landside, landslide Linden. just just evil on so many different levels in th- just throughout this book and these are just a few examples what's other what what, all, what else is really startling is just how many opportunities there were for individuals to stop this man and this gets into my one thing from a number of other books of personal integrity and the daily decisions that that we make as as individuals. Uh, once, once uh LBJ won by these 87 votes, Koch Stevenson took it to court. And there there were different parts where there there were additional votes uh, on whether it was going to proceed or they were going to do further further evaluations. And there was one part where it the LBJ won by one vote for it not to, like for him to be able to, to move forward and, and for it not to, to have further scrutiny. One vote out of uh, like 100 or something. One vote. You know, if, if 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 just a few of those people had changed their votes, if one person had changed their vote, uh, th- that would have stopped LBJ. There was a judge in D.C. at the time that that halted all proceedings that were looking into this Box 13 and other irregularities. So here is one judge that was able to, to stop that, uh, looking into it further. Again, one person. It would have taken one person to tell what was happening in this Precinct 13, and, and no, one, no one did it. So again, just startling, and, and again... This, this led to LBJ further along the line becoming president, but to get there were just evil means to get to that end. So do the ends justify the means? This story followed him and this, this box 13 followed him for the rest of his life. It put a cloud over him for, for the rest of his life. And without this election, it's almost guaranteed that he does not become president. He had gone all in, and so if he lost this Senate race, he would not even have been in the House anymore. But without this cheating, you don't see MLK Jr. crying on March fifteenth, 1965, at the words spoken by LBJ. So do the ends justify the means? A few other things that uh, stuck out to me. Um, LBJ throughout his candidacy would give his own impression on documents or what Stevenson had said in the past. uh, And this shows up just throughout this whole series so far. There are the original documents, there are the original statements said, and then there is LBJ's interpretation of them or someone else's interpretation that then gets shared with the media. And because LBJ has more money to spend on media through the Brown and, and Root money, he's able to repeat these messages over and over. And so just for for us as as citizens, what what's the best way for us to be informed? And it's to look at the original documents, whether that's something that somebody originally said, whether it's the actual bill being put before Congress or the Senate, why don't you read let let's read those bills as opposed to reading what The news media is saying about those bills or what a politician is saying about these bills. Let's start reading these bills for ourselves. Maybe we should read the original founding documents themselves of what government is supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. To read what Senate is allowed to do, what their role is, to read what Congress is allowed to do, what their role is, what the executive branch is allowed to do. Reading these original documents, it just over and over you see if if that's really the only way to to get past a lot of the spin and the lies out there. The other thing is this, is to view the candidate's record over reports, over what you see in the news media, because that can be so easily manipulated. And that's what LBJ would do over and over in this candidacy against, uh, in this election against Koch-Stevenson. He would say things that were just simply not true. It was actually... Kind of what he thought, uh, or what he had voted for, and, but he would put that on Coke. And if people had just gone back to vote uh, Coke's voting record, they would have seen that what LBJ was saying was just simply not true. But they weren't doing that. They were they were hearing what what was being said on the radio by LBJ, and not obviously not everybody. And 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 if you if you take the the view that this was a stolen election, Coke Stevenson did win. So the majority of people did believe Koch Stevenson and what he was saying and saying, look back at my record. But there were enough people who voted for LBJ. And then when you add in the stolen election side of things, LBJ won from that. So if you have the opportunity and uh, when you're you're viewing candidates, look at their record. And that record could in- include their their life, who they were in high school, college, as a person, their character. But it also can look at their record, their voting record, throughout their life. That is going to be more important than what your news outlet says, what other politicians say, what the other person running against that person is saying about that person. Don't have that be your your initial source of information. Have it be what the candidate has has done and voted for in the past. And yes, these things may take more work, but it's a matter of time. You're going to be spending time reading what the news is saying about this person, or you could ignore that and read the original documents, or you could read the record of the candidate. So to recap, this book was exhilarating. My heart was racing at different parts. I, I mean, I could feel my heart beating. Uh, one was just in anger of of LBJ and the evil of of LBJ, but other parts of which I mean there were just thrilling court cases in this book. There's this election of just insurmountable odds and somehow LBJ pulls it off. Uh, to some extent, you you know it's like the Titanic, you know what's gonna happen in that movie. I mean, you know LBJ is going to be, be become president at some point. but you're looking at these odds and you, and you're saying there's just no way he's gonna get to this next step. And he does. And it's not by great uh, means that he that he does this. It. It's it's most of the time it's just by evil means that he's doing this. But he's also using innovative measures in his campaign. He's using new marketing tactics. He's you know he's using this helicopter. But even with that, he lost the primary, and it, had it not been for the cheating, he would have lost the runoff as well. So after reading the first book of the series about LBJ's early life. Uh, nothing comes as a surprise in this book. You're, you're expecting this. You're expecting the cheating. You're expecting the evil things he does. This is the way that LBJ has always been. There's no moral framework other than ambition, and he will do whatever it takes to win, to, to whatever it takes to reach his path to power, whatever it takes. I just cannot shake that visual of MLK Jr watching LBJ's speech and having a tear come down his face a man who rarely if ever cried having having a tear come down during LBJ's speech but what did it take to get to those ends it's a fascinating study of a person the good the bad the continuation of seeing this personal ambition lead to great good but even worse evil. The means of ascent, the means of ascending in power do not do not mean that you are ascending in character. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. I, I really would, especially if you have Read this series. Uh, I, I heard from a number of people from, uh, after the first episode who who just loved this this Caro series. And the thing that stuck out is people that contacted me have read this series more than one time. I mean, I'm looking at uh, between 120 and 100, 130 hours total for for reading these four books. And people are telling me I've read these books two to three times, and even more. So if you if if that's you. I would love to hear your thoughts on these books, uh, where you disagree, where uh, perhaps where where you agree, maybe where I got something wrong. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. And you can email me at eric at That's E-R-I-K at booksoftitans.com. You can also support the podcast by going to booksoftitans.com forward slash support. You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. And the website is stocked full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in two weeks and I am doing as much as I can to finish the next book, The Master Master of the Senate. That is book three of this series and I am doing all I can to have that done by the next episode which will be March 26th. If I do not finish it in time, I will have another episode that will be dealing with books about presidents. But I'm going to do everything I can to to just keep going so that in two weeks I can talk about that book. But it is a thousand-plus book page, so just depending on, on work and family and, and other things, I, I will try to get that that done. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.